Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 46 of UAB Green and Told, original air date Monday, May 24th, 2021. Through this podcast, we are able to share stories from members of the UAB community. Miss an episode? Listen back to all of them on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. While you're there, I'd love for you to leave a written review so we can reach more alumni. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. An ever-evolving medical field has grown and changed throughout time. When needs arise, people find ways to meet those voids. That includes alumna Christy Henderson. As she'll reveal, she wasn't pleased with the health care many people in Mississippi were experiencing. And one of the big problems was access to care and timely access to care, especially in a state that had, you know, at that time, um, some of the greatest uh, healthcare professional shortages in the country. And as Christy will explain, in the world of telehealth, the doors were opened, for good or bad, by the global pandemic. Then the pandemic opened everybody's eyes because the clinics closed and there wasn't a choice. In a relatively short period of time, telehealth has become mainstream. And Christy will share why it's important that this aspect of healthcare continues to grow. Technology that is intelligent, data-driven, and contextual gives us the ability to have this dynamic personalization so that it just happens like it's supposed to. Christy Henderson describes herself as having been a quiet but social kid. All she wanted to do was help make a difference. Due to that desire, she was drawn to healthcare at an early age. Her career, as odd as it may sound, kind of started as a teenager with a whistle, a flotation device, and plenty of sunscreen. As early as I could, I wanted to start working. And one of the first jobs I could get was lifeguarding, which seems like, okay, that's a, you know, a typical high school uh, job. But it was at a water park and we had a first aid office. We actually had, you know, every day some kind of health event, whether it was somebody that passed out, whether we had a diving injury with a spinal injury, whether we had, you know, minor things. But I was just always fascinated by the EMT that staffed the first aid office and always got really interested in health care at that time. And, and there were starting to be some early shows that were showing kind of the day in the life of hospitals and healthcare. And so I was just always attracted to it. But I started volunteering in the emergency department um, before I was a nurse and did that for, for many summers and you know, weekends and just was fascinated by emergency medicine and that pace, kind of going back to my personality of one that likes to move fast, likes change. And so that environment was just really intriguing to me um, and en enjoyed helping people, wanted to, to be a part of the solution. And so um, that's where it all came from. And, and from there, just kept fostering that interest. And when I went to college, uh, majoring in nursing and, um, and knew I wanted to work in the emergency department field uh, when I first came out. You wind up going to Mississippi College to get your bachelor's, and then you got your master's at Mississippi University for Women. You obviously at that point wanted to get yourself established in the nursing field. Why did you pinpoint nursing as opposed to some of the other healthcare options? Well, in the hospital, I would shadow and I got to see as a volunteer in the ER physicians and nurses and other pharmacists, all, you know, just multidisciplinary health professionals. What I loved is the balance between this advocate and patient educator and caretaker 
as well as um, a career pathway that could lead me into being able to do so many more things. And so if I've thought about how I was going to influence the healthcare system and make a bigger difference for me and my personality, I felt like nursing was the perfect place for me to be able to really feed that um, interest and desire for direct patient care, but being able to influence in such a, a large way because that's the healthcare professional that spends the majority of the time with patients. And um, so I thought I really could do a lot. And so, you know, I, even as I started as a new nurse in the emergency department, exactly in the place where I had been doing volunteering, I quickly saw the opportunity where, okay, I can take on some leadership roles and whether that's a charge nurse or whatever it would be, but knew that I wanted to be able to actually continue my um, education and become a nurse practitioner. I wanted to be able to then take care of my own patients as well as bring in what I had learned as a nurse and seeing both sides of that just was fascinating to me. And I thought I could um, really make a big difference. And so I, I continued my education and that's what drove me to Mississippi University for Women for my master's degree. Where did that drive come from? Something obviously made you think, you know what, I do want to progress this a little bit more. I have a sense of restlessness, um, meaning that I'm not through, like I still don't feel finished. I, I want to keep learning and I want to keep um, being the best that I can be to be able to influence the system and, and, um, and then make individual impact. So whether it was me as a direct patient caregiver, I wanted to be the best that I could for every individual that I touched but then kept learning in other areas of healthcare to say, okay, if I become more skilled in administrative and the business of health um, or even in technology, then I can um, continue to improve on, on how I can influence the, what I thought was a broken healthcare system in the country. And so it was just this continued thirst and unsettled feeling that it's not good enough yet. And, and I don't want the system to be like this. And so I wanted to be a part of the solution. You spent a lot of time at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson. Right around the mid-2000s, 2003, 2005, you kind of segued into telehealth. When we were growing up, this was not a thing. Did that interest just kind of all of a sudden pop in there that there was a need and you wanted to help meet that need and kind of discover ways that this can help? Yeah, so that's exactly how it happened. And, and it wasn't, oh, I'm going to go do telehealth and go figure out where I can use it. It was a problem that we had, which is kind of even goes back to why I kept going back for more degrees and more education is because I saw a problem and I knew I needed either a skill, an expertise or a network or something to be able to help unplug that hole. And one of the big problems was access to care and timely access to care, especially in a state that had, you know, at that time, um, some of the greatest uh, healthcare professional shortages in the country and definitely a mismatch of where people live versus where the, the healthcare professionals were re resided in the state. And so it was um, long travels or delays in care or um, specialists not available at all. And people just went without. And I thought there's got to be a better way. And we tried, there was other things we tried first that didn't work. So it's not like we, I sat down and said, oh, this is the solution. And, and it worked. It was, of course, um, problem solving. And, and the reason I got into telehealth is because I kept thinking we've got to bring care to people. We have a shortage of healthcare professionals, so I can't multiply them. 
uh, even though that was another initiative, right? Hire, um, educate more people, draw more people into healthcare profession. That was definitely one of them. Let's do rural scholars programs to incentivize people to live in these small towns and deliver the care that's needed, but none of those were sustainable or um, making a difference fast enough. And so that's where this idea came from was, let's go find out who is in those communities. Let's connect them through technology to the expertise and skills that they need and let the two partner. It actually um, feeds the community and creates new jobs there locally and advances local skill set and knowledge, gets people the care they need, and it helps the bigger city academic medical centers that we're dealing with a lot of overcrowding and allows them to use their expertise for what they are really, really good at. So it was, it was just a win-win-win for everybody. And so it didn't come with a lot of without a lot of work and barriers along the way, because as you know, in 2003, no one was doing this and talking about it. And, um, and the concept I would say actually came in 1999. And it took those two and a half years or so to get through all the hurdles of just making people aware of what are you trying to do? And how are we going to make sure people are safe? So we had to do a lot of work to be able to set up this program and get started in 2003. With all the technology we have today in 2021, I mean, it, it's easy to think that we can get this done. But you rewind 15, 20 years ago. That wasn't the case. How basic was the process of telehealth when you first started it? Oh, you, uh, The stories are amazing. So I, I can just tell you that me and two other people typically were in my vehicle and in the back of it, we would have two box TVs, not flat screen TVs, two box TVs. We'd have a, a cable, computer cable, internet cable, and back there and, you know, um, duct tape and everything else. And we would go and demo this and, and we would run, put in an administrative office in a hospital usually where we would meet with the board and some of the physicians. We'd set up a TV there. We'd run a cord from there all the way down the hall to the second place where we would have the pretend you know, doctor from UMC, the academic medical center that was supposed to be the remote provider. And we would mock this up to show them how it would work, plugged into usually the only internet port in the hospital back then. So it's not like you had widespread connectivity at every desk in these rural hospitals. It's a community hospital. They're small. So it was, it was that, that interesting. I'll just put it that way. And then and, but everything was a point-to-point -point solution that we had to partner with the telecommunication companies to have them run a dedicated T1 line from the university's uh, medical center to that hospital. So um, it, it's just pretty fascinating to think back of. I, I, good thing I didn't see all the things we were going to have to do before I started is all I can say. <laughs> well, and let me tell you this side of it. So in at the academic medical center, we had a room which was med control where that's where the providers were already answering ambulance calls anyway. So we set up in there a TV for every hospital. We started with three hospitals. So we had three TVs and three cameras on top of it that could show our side of it to the other side. But we had a remote control that was, um, you could zoom and, and control the camera at the far side where the patient was. But because you had all three TVs there together, when you did that, it moved all the cameras. And so we had to put an index card over the sensor of all three and you would flip up the one that you wanted to use when you needed to interact and move your camera for that patient. So all of them didn't move. So um, that is what it looked like on the other side back in 2003. Fast forward to 2021, how much has telehealth 
grown in these nearly 20 years? Oh, well, for many years, it was very slow and tedious and painful because everything was grant dependent or a donation had to be made. So hospitals and um, there was no reimbursement for it back then. And so everything I had to do with this, I had to go write a grant. And then that sometimes would take, you know, a year. So then I would expand and we had, you know, gracious donors that believed in the concept early in the state and started us and even then again funded it again and again. But then we also had to supplement with grant funding to even get the infrastructure in place. So it was really slow. And of course, that was probably in I guess 2014, 2015, it really had made really good progress. We were about 260 sites across the state. Almost every county, actually every county had some kind of access point back to the medical center. And um, and then they used it to augment whatever their gaps were in care. So that, and it, it made really good progress by then. Um, that's about the time when I um, decided to take that concept and replicate it elsewhere. I, I knew that it was working so well and I needed it to be tested in other geographies if we are gonna get the intention to be able to influence the national health system. It's hard to convince people to say, hey, let's go learn from Mississippi and you know, take it for what it's worth. I mean, but there's no better place to actually test something that's gonna improve health than the state that had one of the worst health outcomes, greatest shortages of healthcare, health literacy problems, poverty that it has, all the things that everyone knows are the hardest to address. So why not use that model? But what, what I knew was, is that there was still skepticism and doubt from people, even though we were asked to, you know, I can't, I think I testified three times in, at the U.S. Senate and, um, and the White House Health Policy Group telling the story. So there was a lot of coverage of this. I was meeting with um, the Federal Communications Commission, telling them around why broadband is actually about health. It's not just about business. And so those were in the early days. So it was all good, but I needed to replicate it. So there was still a lot of um, uncertainty around the future of it or if it was going to truly become mainstream in healthcare and not just novelty because of the barriers and challenges that I had to go through all those years. And people just didn't have the stamina, didn't have the money to invest into it. So there was a lot of skepticism. What changed it all was the pandemic. Um, but I will say that when I took it out of Mississippi, I did tweak it and refine it replicated in another state, first in Texas and then nationally for another health system, and then took learnings and kind of moved on through my career and, and, and kept iterating on things. But again, all of them were slow progress, and um, but not mainstream until the pandemic. Then the pandemic opened everybody's eyes because the clinics closed and there wasn't a choice. And, and so all the skeptics, whether that was the physicians, nurses, whoever it was, um, their clinics were closed, patients had need, and everybody, that was the only option. So now we have a, a group of consumers and patients that are saying, hey, that worked, I wanna use it. And you're having clinicians going, hey, that was actually pretty nice. I'm also kind of burnt out and tired of running all over the place. Could I, a couple days a week, work at my home and actually see my patients through video? So it, I think it just, um, people realize that it can be used for all ages, all specialties, that yes, seniors can use this. Yes, they can engage. Um, yes, we can address care gaps. It's not just for urgent care. So um, now that's the silver lining that came out of, of the pandemic. 
And now it's up to us as a country to come together and really move it from that state to a real integration into the healthcare delivery system. And so for me, this is one of the most critical times for us to take advantage of that to really think about a virtual first model and when should you actually use a brick and mortar location? When should you go to a clinic? When should you go to a hospital? And just like uh, ambulatory surgery sites were added to move certain operating procedures into a, a, a new environment, this is the same thing. So incredibly optimistic about where we're going, but you know, you saw um, most clinics were running somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of their volume in a telehealth environment uh, during the pandemic. At the onset of the pandemic, you were actually working for Amazon Care, part of Amazon, which is just a unique experience in itself. But how prepared during that time were you, knowing that you have an extensive telehealth background, were you for COVID-19 and the pandemic? First of all, it was a tragedy, you know, just still is to this day. So I wouldn't say I was like, uh, the thing that came out of it, it was like, I actually knew this is the time for all of the telehealth enthusiasts to stand up on the soapbox, get out there and plug this in everywhere. Um, I actually just felt this huge responsibility to get out there and give people the care that they needed because we had the solution. It had always been there, but people weren't prepared. So um, I was prepared. I'd been waiting for a day like this for, for my entire career to be able to really advance it. Um, you know, I was working on telehealth in Amazon, so we were serving our employees and able to deliver care. And I'll tell you, it was, it was a moment I remember vividly when I decided to come back into the traditional health system and COVID influenced that. Um, I had gone to Amazon to be a part of um, changing the model of care without the legacy barriers that were in a traditional system. And, and frankly, I'd gotten to a point where I thought we might had map, map kind of hit our, our ceiling of what innovation was really going to be um, able to be ingested in the traditional system, unless um, incentives and reimbursement and regulatory things were significantly changed. And that was taking a long time. And we had made progress, don't get me wrong. But I moved to Amazon because I thought, again, like before, I think I can go here and have a bigger impact on more people across the globe. And um, when when the barriers went away, it was like, okay, we've got a tech company that's building all of this. Are they going to be able to figure out healthcare faster, or can I now get into an established healthcare system that's across the country that also happens to be a payer and bring that expertise in and just digitize and ignite really the existing. Uh, infrastructure that existed within Optum and United Health Group. And so it was a hard decision for me. I, I'm, I'm really focused on value-based care and vulnerable populations and reaching those that need care and doing it in the best location. And I believe strongly that it doesn't mean we don't need in-person care. I just think that we for a virtual first is a great option. So for me, I felt I could make the bigger impact at that time because of the pandemic back in the traditional health system with United Health Group. Do you think the telehealth industry will ever have a growth spurt like it has with the pandemic? Well, no, I don't think it'll have another one like that unless we have another pandemic. Um, because think about anything else, change is hard. 
and it's gradual. And you, you always, if you think about an innovation curve, you've always got your early adopters and you've got your laggards and you've got all that in between. And so you're always going to kind of follow that curve of adoption. And, um, and so I, that just takes time. And we've got a lot of work still to do around how to use it, when to use it, no different than the long history we've had in healthcare trying to tell people when it's uh, when they should go to an ER versus an urgent care versus a clinic. Uh, consumers just don't understand all that. And when you don't feel good and you're sick or it's your child or a family member that you love sick, um, everyone, emotions come into it and you're just going where you can go. And so until we really make um, it frictionless and easy to get care virtually, Without confusion around, is it going? Who, who's going to be on the other side? Is my insurance going to cover it? Are they going to be able to take care of this? How are they going to listen to my heart and lungs? How how are they going to get my blood work? So all of that's going through everybody's mind. So until we tell that story, um, I don't think we're going to have that um, huge integration into the healthcare system on a consistent basis for everyone. So I don't think we'll have that kind of surge like we did again unless we go through another shutdown of our health system. How do you educate people on when to use a brick and mortar and when to use telehealth? Because that can't be an easy thing either. Well, it's not black and white. And everyone's a human and an individual. And we talk about all the time an N of one because it's, it is truly personalized. There's nothing more personal than healthcare. And, and so that's what makes this so hard. And what, I've, what we're focused on, at least, is building the technology to take the decision and decision-making confusion and hassle away, meaning that just have a conversation. Come on the video or answer these questions and we'll take care of that for you. We're going to already know about you, right? Because you have trusted us with your health care. You've told us what your preferences are. You've told us what you're, you've given us access to your medical records. So we understand that we, we know your family history. So we know what you're at risk for. And Hey, when we, when we became your healthcare provider, we learned all about you and your family situation. So now I can all that data is in my technology so that when you come in and say you have a cough, I know you have asthma and you live in a, uh, an area with a high propensity to allergy induced asthma, you know, asthma attacks so that I can then customize things. I can have sensors. I can have ambient monitoring in your home technology that is intelligent, data driven and contextual gives us the ability to have this dynamic personalization so that it just happens like it's supposed to. And so I talk all the time to my team around, let's make healthcare auto magically work right. <laughs> and uh, that's like a made up word. But, you know, until we can get to that point, otherwise it's just easier to hit zero. Hit zero and get somebody on the phone and say, I've got this problem. My child has this problem. Can I come in and see you? I guess I can come at six o'clock after I get off work and um, or five o'clock or whatever it is it doesn't matter but it's just that's the natural we know that and we know what to expect so we're going to go there unless you show me something that works better and consistently delivers on what i need so um, i think it's a multimodal approach of how we educate people one they have to experience we have to tell stories the healthcare providers and the clinicians and the nurses across the country need to understand it as well 
and advocate for it for their patients in a way um, that it makes sense and, um, and tell them how it's used and use it in their own practice. The moment a nurse or a nurse practitioner or physician says, hey, look, the next time you come in for your checkup for diabetes, you're looking really good. Let's just do a little video check. And if we need to do anything more, we can see you. But hey, just download this app or click on this button. We'll send your next appointment through this text to you. And when you get the link, just click that button. We'll be waiting for you. Um, just that kind of messaging and communication will change how uh, the adoption of it. But we've got a lot of work. Um, uh, there's a lot of um, unknowns to the general public about what telehealth is. In 2010, you earned your DNP from the School of Nursing here at UAB. How has that education, that experience helped progress your career? So I went back specifically for that because I wanted to start having an influence nationally. And I knew to step on that stage um, that I needed to, one, get more expertise and skills and just leadership and influence um, everything from communication to just understanding more and more around the business of health. And so I sought out um, various programs, trying to look for one that could build on my um, clinical practice and expertise in healthcare. And so at that time, the doctorate of nursing practice was also um, still fairly new, but it really was a perfect fit for me. It was um, a leadership focus and it was allowing me to get those skills so that I could move into the national stage and be recognized as an expert. I knew I wanted my doctorate I knew I wanted it in healthcare, and and I found a perfect fit with UAB. Growing up as a kid in Mississippi, were you interested in technology? No. No. And that, I mean, that was never an area really where I even thought I would be. Um, but I'm fascinated by it now. And I think that it's really, I feel like I'm a, um, a designer. Um, I feel like I'm a, a designer or a health architect. And technology is the tool for me to build this new model of care. So it's like, um, it's this, it's never ends. It's just, where do I see in, uh, inefficiencies, fragmentation, silos, poor communication, and how can I make it better? I'm trying to build healthcare for the modern world. Everything else in our lives has been adjusted to the modern world, but healthcare. And so it is, I wish it was as easy as doing it in retail or anything else, but there's all these regulatory and legacy behaviors, our training programs don't train for this. And so uh, there's just, uh, it, it takes time. And, um, but no, technology was not, I, I went into healthcare. I wanted to interact with humans, not technology, but technology really becomes this fibrous network that connects the whole health ecosystem so people can get care when they need it. That's Dr. Christy Henderson, Senior Vice President of Telehealth and Innovation at Optum Health. In 2010, Christy was awarded her Doctor of Nursing Practice degree from the UAB School of Nursing. With a decades-long relationship with the university, Dr. Henderson has her own thoughts of what it means to be a blazer. Two things. I have great pride in my degree from UAB. It is recognized as the top school of nursing. It has uh, an amazing network across the country of, of experts and leaders um, in all fields. And so I feel a sense of pride holding that badge um, and a sense of responsibility to go out and change the world. And so, you know, I, I think it's both of those. It's, it's um, one of honor and, and one of responsibility. 
Be sure to listen in to previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. You can find all of them at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. You can also listen in on Spotify and the Apple Podcasts app. Have a story to share? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Go Blazers! <laughs>